Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Stimel, here for episode 30. Thank you for tuning in. Now, on our show, we've had Tony Award winners, Emmy Award winners, and Drama Desk winners. Today, we have our first Grammy Award winner. If you like this interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on YouTube. And if there is someone you'd love to hear on the show, let me know by leaving a comment or reaching out on Patreon. Today's guest is Denise Barbarita the aforementioned Grammy-winning sound engineer based in New York City. She is also a musician, a songwriter, and works on album projects, scores, and audio post-production for film and TV. As an engineer and producer, she has worked with artists of hip-hop, rock, and punk genres, as well as theater, jazz, and classical. Denise has released four albums with her band The Morning Papers, through her label and publishing company, My Shytoon Music. She is the head engineer and owner of Mono Lisa Recording Studio in New York City. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Denise Barbarita, to the podcast. Hi. I want to mention that we're recording this on October 21st, 2020. So we're amidst the COVID-19 pandemic and then also the Black Lives Matter reawakening going on. Could you give us a recap of your life and your career up to where you are today? I grew up in Delaware. I mean, my family basically has its roots in New York. And my dad went into the Air Force, and that's how we wound up in Delaware. Couldn't wait to get out because my heart belonged here. Like, from the time I was a kid, I knew that New York was my home, and I couldn't understand why we didn't live here. You know, it's just one of those those inner truths. So uh, I went to college at Berkeley College of Music, moved here in 94, you know, and just worked my way up. The studio where I was engineering called Campo Studios in 2010, they closed. The studios around that time were closing pretty much once a year. You know, there was one or two studios closing at least from 2003 to 2010. They didn't close because of, you know, the economy here. They closed because of a situation in Japan. It was a family-owned business. There was a schism, blah, blah, blah. So that's really why they closed. It had nothing to do with the business being in bad shape, really. But it was still sad. I bopped around for a little bit, trying to find a way to make things work. And at some point, I was just like, you know what? I need to own my own studio because I can't take it anymore. I was spending all of my time trying to work within people's budgets at various studios where I had relationships with and I was always selling myself short. And it was always like, well, I can't get this studio. I can't get this studio because they're booked. I need this one, but I prefer to use that, you know, like trying to figure out how to make things work. And it was like, no, I can't, I can't do this anymore. One artist is getting a great deal. This studio is getting their rate and I'm cutting my rate in order to make it work. In a way, owning a studio is the same thing because I have to pay rent, but I have 100% of the control in terms of booking. It's just that I also have 100% control of all the other problems as well, like technical issues and insurance, amps being noisy and crackles and pops and 
you know, having to upgrade computers and HVAC and electrical circuits and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, everybody is looking to be free, right? That's the American motto. Like, oh, freedom. With increased freedom comes increased responsibility. And a lot of people who work regular jobs, who are dreaming of having their own business, when you own your own business, you are 100% liable. And while it's nice to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to take today off to do a podcast because I don't really have anything to do. It also means that we're not making income today and we have rent to pay in two weeks. It's just weird. It's, it's a place that none of us really knows what to do with. But anyway, yeah, the studio is called Mona Lisa. We've been open since 2013. We moved three times. Now we're fine. So we picked up some of this already, but your demographics, could you describe your demographics? Oh, I'm 49. I'm just going to come out and say it. 49. I'm going to be 49 for a while. I'm female. I don't know if you could figure that out. Although at 49, I am getting like the five o'clock shadow and the Catholic mustache. So that's a thing. <laughs> married, married. I'm a Virgo, if you wanted to know. I'm just, you know, a mutt. I'm Italian, Irish, and Dutch. Partial colonizers, you know, pixies. To get to know your creative personality, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? Oh, music concerts. I think the last show that I went to was Nine Inch Nails at the Radio City Music Hall. Two hours of bliss. He was on fire that night doing stuff that I haven't heard in so long. It was easily a two-hour set, and it was just like... <laughs> You know, just just an onslaught. God, I felt like it was therapy after that. It was so amazing. And the show that I saw before that, maybe a month earlier, was Radiohead at, at the Garden. And that was just blissed out. What is a piece of art that you like? I'm a huge Impressionist fan. I love Impressionist, especially Sunday in the Park with uh, Sarah. I saw that on PBS, right, with Bernadette Peters. I was mesmerized by that. Then I got into his work to think that somebody sat there for hours. The pointillism blows my mind. Um, and his work is fantastic. I have a thing also for Dali, Gustav Klimt, I like. Obviously, The Kiss is his famous one. But there's a whole series of paintings that he did of woods in different times of the day, like the birches. I could look at those paintings for days. But even some of the more modernist, like Georgia O'Keeffe, I would put in the Impressionist box, even though she's not really an Impressionist, right? Picasso to a degree, but he's much more masculine. Miro, I liked a lot. Monet, but I think if I had a favorite, Van Gogh, because of the movement. When you look at his paintings, they come alive. There, there's this internet meme. It has a starry night, but then it has this thing, that this spinning thing. You're supposed to watch that for 30 seconds. And then look at a starry night and you see it move. It's like, what? It's so cool. But I think there's something about Van Gogh's work that just every time I look at it, there's a piece of my soul, just like a little piece of me that's like, yes, I'm there. Yeah, that's awesome. Here's a little tidbit on Van Gogh for you. He was so poor. Part of the reason why he painted himself and he painted landscapes was because he couldn't pay models to pose for him. I, I know it's sad. And also he died at 37 and he was poor and 
in this pandemic, it's like in the United States, we decide art is only worthwhile if it pays for itself. With Van Gogh, it's like he was not good with money. He was clearly an artist. Are we saying he was worthless to society? He sort of felt that way. But his images have impacted millions, billions of people are amazed by it. So is that worthless to society? You know, we've gotten to the point as a society where the only thing that matters is personal health because everything is factored by money and how much of it you have. You know, I have gear envy just like every other engineer. And it's like, well, how much is too much? A space just opened up next to us. And it's like, oh, if I could only afford an extra $5,000 a month, I would take that space, expand. We'd have another live room and another da 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 And then I'm thinking to myself like, yeah, okay, so that's another $60,000 loan. Uh, that's another like $4,000 a month. Then I'm going to have to do what in order to pay for that? And we'd have to be booked at least 30 out of 31 days. And the logistics of it doesn't make sense. Is your four bedroom, three bath home enough for you? Or is there some reason why you need the McMansion? What keeps you motivated to keep working the days where you just don't want to get out of bed? As I've gotten older, I've realized that sometimes staying in bed is the best thing. You have that day to be all self-pitying and pat around the house in your jammies complaining that everybody hates you and the world is so unfair and oh, woe is me, let me watch some Star Trek. I, I'll give myself a day. And then when that day is up, it's like, okay, you're going to do your to-do list tonight before you go to bed. And then you're going to conquer that tomorrow. I'm going to give you this time to feel sorry for yourself. Here's self-pity day. And then one foot in front of the other. You know what I mean? I think the motivation, I think all of us have it within us, but it's a personality. Some of us are the types of people that need outside motivation. Some of us are the types of people that can be self-motivated. And I think that's one of those things when it comes to owning a business or being an entrepreneur that defines different types of people. If you're, if you're a visual artist, like what made Van Gogh paint? Like he was poor as dirt. He was kind of what kind of job would he have been able to do to make money? And what motivated him to paint all day? What motivates songwriters to write songs? What motivates Wall Street financiers to take people's money? It's an inner motivation. I used to push through it more and I used to force myself to do things. And I used to push, 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 push. And at some point I stopped pushing. Some people would call that let go and let God. Uh -uh. It's finally having the self-awareness that pushing is just going to create more resistance. You do the stuff that you need to do in order to get people to know that you exist, but also realizing at some point you've become indispensable to certain people. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. I love that answer. So now we know your creative personality. Let's get to know your financial personality. Are you bad or good with money? I am a mess. I think that's the best way to put it. When I have money, I'm very good at squirreling it away. When I don't have money, I spend it. So with money, the money you squirrel away, are you risk averse or are you, you a risk taker? Both at the same time. When we decided we need to build our own studio, that's pretty risky. I didn't have it. I didn't know if it was going to work. The people that we agreed to get the space from, I knew it was a hinky situation. 
I knew it. It was 2012 into 2013. And I'm like, the world is either going to end by the Mayan calendar or we're going to have a studio. And I don't know if the studio is going to go anywhere. I don't know if anybody's going to come. I don't know anything, but we gave it a shot. And here we are. I have lots of long-term plans, but because of the volatile nature of our business, it's very hard to stay on those plans because you don't like, we don't have a structured income. So I tend not to spend money unless I absolutely have to. Right. Yeah. Um, when you were growing up, did you have good financial examples? I grew up, I'll explain it this way. I was born in Delaware in a trailer park right outside the Dover Air Force Base. Then my dad uh, started school at University of Delaware. So they were in buried housing. Then he got a job at DuPont. My mom went to school at U of D. We got a bigger apartment. And then when I was about 10 and my sister was born, 9, 10, we moved into our first house, which was, you know, your middle class, like all the houses look the same in the development. There are like four houses and everybody chooses the one they want. And then we moved into a much bigger home. I saw how that changed our family dynamic. They took a big bite and they got this great big house. You know, all the decisions were based on that. That made me realize that it's not the end all be all. Yeah. At the start of your career, so I guess, I guess, did you get out of college and you got a job being an engineer at a studio? Intern. I was a GA. But out of school, you moved right to New York. What did your finances look like then? I was broke. I came to New York with $200 and a dream. You know what I mean? Like, I was very, very fortunate in the sense that I still had family who lived in New York. And I lived in Whitestone, Queens. They were very gracious. And I stayed there for the first six months until I could find my own apartment. But remember, this is 1994. So I had a one bedroom apartment. It was a tiny little thing. I think the whole apartment probably fits in my current living room. It was on the Upper West Side on 101st and Central Park West. And it was 665 a month, $665 a month. And I think I probably took home about a thousand a month. And my rent was 665. I walked one way to work to save that like 75 cents. Every Friday, I went to the Latino vegetable place called Styles. I don't even know if it's still there, but I think it was on like 46th and 10th. And I would spend $20 and bring home like bags of vegetables. I think of all the trials and tribulations that I had to go through, especially being female in a very male-dominated industry. There were knuckleheads I had to deal with over time. In a way, I, I appreciate it. Like, I'm glad that I had to go through all that. And like, I can say that now that people forced me to feel like I had to be a hundred times better than everybody. And you weren't going to get in my way. And when people did get in my way, it was a reminder of why I wanted to keep going, even though I was broke most of the time. <laughs> and the crazy thing is by the time I started getting called for uh, people projects, I was 28, 29, you're going to buy an apartment, you know, you're going to save up in your retirement savings, you're going to do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, you know, I had this whole plan. And then 9-11 happened and I watched my savings just go away. All of it within six months, it was gone because I had no income. Everything went away. Like September 10th, I had six months of bookings and they were all like thousand dollar days, six months of that. I had my plan ready. I knew how I was, I was going to get an apartment in January. Like I had the whole plan. September 11th. Oh, by September 20th, everything was gone. So the money that I had actually saved was my lifeline until the beginning of 2002. 
And then that was gone. And so I had a real job and that sucked. But that adversity reminded me of why, what I wanted to do. What, what do you do? You just get through it. You muddle through it. You figure out a way until things change enough that you can get to the, that you can start over again or that you can actually start making a living again. You do what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm 32. And so I've seen the, the dot-com bust. I've seen the 2008 crash. And now I'm living this one. And it's like every 10 years, like clockwork, it's like a guaranteed thing that's going to happen. The only way it doesn't happen is if we stop looking at financial wealth as the end all and be all and start realizing, start questioning how much is too much. I'm a latte drinking liberal. I'll be the first one to admit it. But I also believe in fairness and equity between people and their lines of work. And that work has worth. When we start putting things into boxes like, oh, people at McDonald's or Walmart don't deserve $15 an hour because it was supposed to be a high school job anyway. Uh, By what standard is that? Why is it a CEO can make $5,000 an hour? That's worth $5,000 an hour. But the people who actually keep the company running, $15 is a bridge too far, like for real. So until we as a nation really start focusing on the fact that all of us need each other and we're not adversaries, we're actually for the greater good, we're screwed. Uh, Throughout your life, have you used a budget? Try to. Our income is volatile. And it it changes from month to month. So we have in the green months where we make more money than we need. And then we have the in the red months. Generally speaking, when we have, when we make more money than we need, I just squirrel it away because I know January is coming and I'm going to need that extra $300 or I'm going to need that extra $400 just in case to pay all the bills. You know what I mean? Yep. What is a good financial decision that you've made? I can't think of many. I'm usually just flying off the seat of my pants, you know, which I've been told many times by people who are more financially better than me. That is not such a good idea to fly by the seat of your pants every month. And it's like, well, but that's the nature of the business. It's sink or swim. The arts have always been sink or swim. Even people with regular jobs, they may not think they're living month to month, but if their job went away, like all the, all the people working at restaurants who... Why would you ever think a restaurant would not be there? It's like the job went away. Who, whoever would thought that a restaurant, like all restaurants, would be going away for even a short period of time? Going back to the flip side of a good financial decision, what is a bad financial decision that you've made? When I got my first business loan, the best thing I could get was like 13% interest. But I needed the gear, so I just did it. I just did it. And I paid it off eventually, and my second was at like 7%, so that's better. I guess my biggest issue is uh, is the debt cycle because now the only reason really we're open is because of the S, uh, the SBA, the EIDL loan that helped us get through the worst of the pandemic when we had no hardly any business at all. We basically have another year to subsidize our you know expenses if needed. Um, and I think the interest rate was like 3%, something ridiculous. Why? Why? After being in business for seven years, I could not get alone at 3% as a business owner. Why did a big pandemic have to shut down the entire city in order for me to get a good loan rate? But I guess for bad decisions, yeah, that would have been one of them. Just loans. Like, I feel like I'm just in a loan cycle. 
I don't know, in the 90s, I could have bought Apple stock when it was 60 cents a share. You know, had I been smart and, you know, had that extra $100 and, and bought that $100 in Apple stock, I could right now be a multimillionaire. I will say, I want to go back in time and say that no, that would not be smart. It would be fortunate. It would be cool. Maybe there's a, a hair of smartness there. But if you went back to a financial advisor at the time, they would have said, put it into an index fund. So if you had done the actual smart thing at that time, you would not have bought Apple stock. So I refuse to accept that answer. <laughs> I don't even know what that is, an index fund. I mean, I have like a money market and I have a 401k and... If we're going to talk best decision and worst decision, not having taken business classes of some sort in school was a bad choice. I don't know if it would have been helpful or hurtful in the long run. Had I had the classes, maybe I wouldn't have taken the chances that I did because I would have thought, well, normal people don't do that. But because I didn't take those classes, I just flew off the seat of my pants and wound up here. Now I've been thinking during the pandemic, like, Maybe I should try doing penny stocks to see if I can figure out how to make the system work. And with penny stocks, I can lose a dollar and my, my life isn't going to be ruined. But I can at least learn how the system works. Like, how do you turn a penny into a dollar? I don't know. I don't really, like, I look at the, the S&P and the Dow Jones and none of it makes sense to me. I mean, here, here, here's just a comment on your wanting to trade penny stocks. Does society need another person at their computer trading imaginary things, trying to create some money, which means somebody else's money went away? It might be good for you personally if you make some money. And maybe there's some argument that says we need those people in the world trading those penny stocks. Would not you recording voiceovers and podcasts and post-production and stuff like that, is that not more useful to society than you sitting at a computer all day? I will counter that with trading penny stocks to learn how the stock market works is better than doom scrolling on Twitter. Okay, you win. <laughs> I just don't care enough, though, because money isn't a motivation. That's my Achilles heel to being financially successful. People who are financially successful, money is important. It's the end all and be all. It's the reason why you do something. Whereas that has never been my motivation. Money has been the motivation to do what I want to do now. Why do people work? And the easy answer is they work to make a paycheck for money. Yeah, but why do they want that money? They want that money so that they can live their life doing something. People work to do something. And that's the thing. My motivation has never been to be a millionaire or a billionaire. Would it be nice? Sure. There are lots of entrepreneurs who are hundred thousandaires who work their asses off every day and they have a viable business, a, a great business, but they're not millionaires. I'm missing that little component of entrepreneurship in order for us to become wealthy. What is that that somebody like me is missing? And does it matter? Would I like to be making more money? Sure, because it would give us a level of comfort. At the same time, I feel like when I'm in positions where I feel comfort, I'm not as motivated. So I sometimes wonder if that's an Achilles heel in and of itself is that I need to feel on the edge in order to be motivated to do more. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so do you have an entity, an LLC? I'm a professor at a school, so that is my own personal income. When I teach, like if I give vocal lessons or I give guitar lessons or if it's like a studio class, that pays me directly. 
when it comes to recording sessions, regardless of what it is, it goes into the Mona Lisa account. And then I use Gusto um, and they're like a payroll company where you pay like $7 a month, then your contractor. So for my assistance, for example, and then when people pay me, they pay me via check, PayPal, Venmo. I put that directly into that account and then pay myself via Gusto. So at the end of the year, you get what you paid your contractors. They send out the 1099 for you because uh, I suck and I forget until it's like, oh, I was supposed to send that three weeks ago. Oops. Uh, and then I'll send it. And then I also have all of my income that comes in from the studio, you know, so that I can keep my personal income and the studio income separate. My husband also is part partner with the company and he teaches drums there, but we consider that additional income. The studio isn't getting paid. He's getting paid. So we consider it his personal income rather than Mona Lisa income, but he does contribute to the rent and that's considered a rental income. So that's kind of how we worked it out. That's sort of complicated, but thank you for the succinct explanation. <laughs> it's just a lot of, it's a lot of different income sources. Do you file your own taxes? Yeah. So if you do it for you, you do it for Mono Lisa, and I guess that's it. Yeah. So we file jointly and we use the TurboTax, you know, the, the, and they do the whole itemized thing and it just steps you through the whole process. Trying to determine what is deductible and what isn't is always a challenge. I just consider any equipment that I buy deductible, even down to rack screws. If I have to buy four screws for a dollar, deduction. The telephone bill, internet, the insurance that we pay, which is ridiculous, uh, our rent is deductible, obviously. The, the thing where it gets hairy is like office supplies slash meals slash, okay, if I go out for a meal with a client to discuss business, is that deductible or only half deductible? When I buy snacks, four sessions. Is that deductible as a business expense? That's where things get hairy. And I think the way that we've done it is all meals are 50%. When we buy snacks for the studio, that's deductible because it's a service that we're providing. That's why I have one rate for everything. I could probably be charging more than I do per hour to accommodate all this other stuff. But I also based our rate on the other studios in our area. So there's one studio that has, has, you know, a full console and booths and the whole nine yards. And without an engineer, they're the same amount of money as we are with. And I think that's fair. There's another uh, studio down the street from us that's very, I kind of modeled Mona Lisa on that studio. And our rate with me is the same. So if I were to go to his studio, if you were to hire me and you were to go to that studio down the street, my rate would be exactly the same. It wouldn't be a difference. Like it would be the same price. That's where it gets a little hairy because even with tax bill, it's like, well, am I now a pass-through? You and your husband co-own it or you own it? If, if, if there's one owner, that's a pass-through. It's all in my name because I started it. Technically on paper, I own it. That means you are a pass-through because if you have a single member company, you can pass through the taxes just to your regular taxes. So that way you're not filling out two separate tax forms per se. I mean, you do have to fill out additional. I do because I have W-2 income and that's why it's confusing because 
you know, I have one client, New York Film Academy, where I do a lot of movie musicals for them. And it's a once a year gig. So I'm paid as W-2 employee, even though I don't work, I'm just like a seasonal employee. And then I'm also an adjunct professor in New Jersey. So that's also W-2 income. The rest of it is all 1099. And there are some clients, obviously some clients don't even 1099 me because they're individuals, you know? So there are some, sometimes like with the theater thing, I have production companies that are paying me. So that's 1099. Some cases, the artists themselves have created an LLC for them. They pay me 1099, but there are quite a few people who don't. Individual A, Joe Schmegdalessa's blues band, he pays me $5,000 to do, to mix his album, but he doesn't send me a 1099. Do I not report it? I always do. Is there a record of it? I report it. If you pay somebody more than $600, you have to send them a 1099. If you pay under that, you can send them a 1099, but you're not required to. And I remember one company, it was like, well, we'll pay you $500. And I was like, oh, well, could you pay me $650? And they were like, well, we could, but then we'll have to send you a 1099 and you don't want us to do that. I always report all my taxes. Whether people send me a 1099 or not, I report it because I'm not good with taxes and I'm afraid of getting in trouble. So I report everything, whether you send me a 1099 or not. I have a couple clients that insist on paying me cash and I freaking hate it because cash just blows out of my pocket so quickly. It's like as soon as the cash gets put there, I've already spent $20. Oh, look, I can get that peanut butter cookie. <laughs> I do not like cash and I don't carry cash for two reasons. A, because I don't trust people and B, I don't trust myself. Having the card, at least I have a record of everything that I buy. Yeah, I, I hate cash. <laughs> me too, me too. Do you have a retirement plan? And if so, what does it look like? It's a 401k. If I live 20 years after retirement, I'll make a whole like $1,500 a year or something or a month. I don't know. Is it set up through Mono Lisa? No, it's not. It's actually through the College of New Jersey. Whatever their maximum is, I think, I can't remember what the maximum amount is. That's how much I have them take out because I'm getting older. They match it. It's matching contributions. So to me, that's just free money. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad that you have that as an option. It's not a whole lot. You know, if there's Social Security by the time we hit 70 or 75, which is probably when we'll be retiring, unless, you know, our limbs stop working or I go deaf, you know, it's our lives. It's not just our livelihoods, but it's our lives. Like we would both be doing what we're doing if we had day jobs. The idea of retirement is not something that we generally think about a lot, but now that we've gotten older, we think about it more often. We're probably going to be 70, 75 by the time we actually stop. Yeah, I, we probably should more about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes and no. I'll never say no. Like, don't think about your retirement. But think about it for 10 minutes like you just did now actually and then i actually want to backtrack and just comment on the fact that you said if social security is around and i will say to everybody go back and listen to our episode on modern monetary theory because social security will be around for everyone in the future it's a it's a choice it's not something that we can defund we can decide that it will be around. It's not, there's, it's not a question. It's not a question of if it's funded or not. Well, but you know, the, the problem is, is that if we have more in the conservative majority and you know, it's, it's days are numbered. Everybody is worried about that. And I'm telling you to go listen to our episode on MMT because okay. <laughs> by the way, the law is, is worded. It is, it's days are number. You're, you're correct in that. However, 
that's a, a simple tweak of one word or two words and problem solved. Okay, I'll listen to that podcast. Outside of retirement, so out of, outside of your 401k, do you invest in anything else? Myself. <laughs> exactly. In my relationship with my loving husband, and I invest myself in time with my nieces and nephews. That's my investment because, you know, money comes and goes. I agree. I agree. Um, okay. So what job of yours has been most financially lucrative? And then regardless of money, what job have you done that you're most proud of? Financially lucrative would probably be engineering in the end of the 90s when our day rates were like a normal day rate was $1,200 a day. Pretty awesome. <laughs> if there's anything from the 90s that I miss, like that would be that day rate was was quite nice. I'm most proud of Mona Lisa, like what we've built. I've had lots of jobs and most of them from the time I was 24 till now has all been working in other people's studios. Being a studio owner is kind of nice, as annoying as it is sometimes. I have fond memories of working for the JFK School of Government at Harvard. It was just a simple AV job. You know, you showed up, I put mic clips on people. I put a mic clip on Al Gore once. In some way, I know this sounds like totally geeky, but in some ways it was kind of a dream job because basically I did the audio thing. It was very simple, nothing major. All of our broadcasts, there was a video person who took care of the video feed. I took care of the audio feed, went to C-SPAN. We had leaders from Bolivia, Colombia, from Canada, Uzbekistan, Israel, Jordan, or whoever. World leaders coming and talking about the needs of their country and what they're hoping their relationship with the United States can be. And that was one of the most amazing experiences. Up until then, my viewpoints on how the U.S., you know, interacts with the world was very myopic. This is America and we do this, that, and the other thing. And you never really think about what the needs and the hopes are for other countries because you don't really think about other countries very often, right? Outside of their relationship to us. I don't know. Like, I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, maybe at a higher level, but what is a higher level really? Whether I was working with Propaganda the Musical or John Legend, I'm still doing the same job in the same place. Whoever I'm recording doesn't matter. It's the same job. And I would treat them with the same amount of respect and the same amount of love and attention because they're people and they're artists and I trust their judgment. But I'll also make a note and say, hey, Measure 52 was a little wonky. You want to redo that? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Do you have a professional network and has it helped you make more money or how, how do you find people to come use Mona Lisa? It's an unofficial network, like for young people who are, are looking for what college they should go to. That's something that I always tell them is really important. Where are you planning to work out of? What are you planning to do? Are you going to be a jazz musician? Are you going to be an engineer? Are you going to be, you know, a filmmaker? Maybe you should choose the school not so much on its curriculum as its level of students. People that you go to college with are generally the people that are your beginning network getting into your career. Even right now, I have, you know, a bunch of friends in California that I know, you know, if I moved there and said, hey guys, I need an entry level position doing something. Are there any jobs available? They would look, they would ask. Like, I know that I have inroads there. In New York, other engineers aren't necessarily going to refer me because 
they want the gig, but the musicians that I've worked with for years and years and years, they're going to recommend me. But also the people that I went to school with, a bunch of them are here. And I can't tell you how many times people that I went to school with, especially in the early years, were integral in me getting a job. So for example, I started in post-production. My heart wasn't in it. I wanted to do music. And I just happened to have gotten a call out of the blue from a friend of mine who was the assistant studio manager at a music studio. And he was like, hey, do you know of anybody who would be interested in becoming a GA at Right Track? And I'm like, yes. Oh, who was that? Me. Oh, and guess who got the job? I found out about my next job from another graduate from Berkeley who recommended me for doing classical editing at, at Koch Records. I got recommendations through people that I knew and through musicians. And these are people who are still friends. Yes, I have networks. And the way that we get work is word of mouth. I've never really felt the need to do too much advertising. My version of advertising, hey, look who was in the studio this weekend. Oh, we had such a great time with this Grammy winning engineer, Grammy winning artist came back. So that's the kind of thing that brings us business. What financial advice would you give yourself when you started out or would you give another engineer starting out right now? Like I said before, I should have taken business classes when I was in college, even an accounting class, not so much like a business class, but just basic accounting. I hate doing all of my end of the month stuff to the point where sometimes the end of the month numbers winds up as end of the month from three months ago. You know what I mean? Cause I just, I hate it so much. But that's the kind of thing, accounting, bookkeeping, I never really thought about it much. And now I wish I had. Is right now a good time for students to be studying art? You do what you love and you find a way. If there's like a story to my life, it's I had a vision, I had a goal, and here we are. Am I uber wealthy? Do I have the corner penthouse of the 100% glass floor to ceiling penthouse apartment in Midtown? No, I do not. But I don't need it to be to be happy. So I would say there's always going to be a time when you're needed. Find a way to become indispensable. I assume no, but are you in any unions? Actually, teachers union, because I'm a, an adjunct professor and they have a teachers union. Well, my follow-up question was, are there pros or cons to being in that union? I mean, I guess there are pros in the sense that we get a raise every year and we didn't before. But how much is that raise based on the fact that we have to pay dues now? So I don't know. When the pandemic hit, a lot of adjuncts were freaking out for obvious reasons. And they were actually instrumental in helping to get adjunct professors unemployment benefits. So the unions were actually helpful in that regard. Didn't really affect me because I live in New York. So unemployment benefits from New Jersey would have just been an additional layer of complication. So I didn't bother with it. It probably would have been helpful, to be honest, but it is what it is. What can you and I do to stress the importance of finance and savings to fellow artists? Our business is an ebb and flow, right? We have eight months that are in the black except during a pandemic, of course. Uh, so eight months that we make more than we need to, right? In order to, to break even, for example, that we profit. And then we have four months that are like, yeah. you have to be able to make sure that you budget accordingly. You know, in October, you have enough for one month's rent in your savings and your business savings. And you know, January is coming. You should probably strive to have two months of rent in your account just to be safe so that you can pay February if January is bad. Okay, final two questions. What separates those that have a full-time career in the arts 
versus those that transition out or maybe never even try to do it? Barring health issues that can't be helped or accidents that can't be helped, like a dancer who breaks an ankle or something and can't do point anymore. Barring those types of things, I think it's just tenacity. It's a personality. It's, it's being able to cope with uncertainty. Some people would call that tenacity. That's, that's how I see it. Coping with uncertainty, being able to not see your future a year from now, being able to, to cope with the fact that you don't know if you can pay rent next month. There are certain people that can cope with that. And there are some people who can't. Also, when things go bad, having the belief in yourself and the belief in your ability that you're going to get through it. And I guess that's where the tenacity comes from. That unyielding, like, I don't know what else to do. So I'm just going to do whatever I have to until I can continue doing this. The combination of those two things. But it, it takes it takes a certain personality to deal with that. Like, why aren't there more women in the music industry? That's why. Women are not taught from an early age to cope with adversity. We're not taught at an early age to be okay with uncertainty. Either women are taught or pushed into fields that are more female friendly, or they're basically told that, oh, it's going to be really hard for you. You have those two things going on, that, that dichotomy. Why aren't there more women in the arts? Well, because they're not encouraged to be. Women are generally taught, and, and maybe even by our own natures, I have no idea, that this feeling of being safe, of being okay within ourselves, of being self-sufficient. Anything that's outside of structure and anything that's outside of stable, we tend to recoil from. And I don't know how much of that is biological and how much of it is learned behavior based on our society that men are the risk takers and women are the ones who do all the right things, right? That's kind of what it's become. I mean, obviously it doesn't work for all women and it doesn't work for all men either because there are quite a few men who would much rather have stability than uncertainty. Just as many men as women don't get past a certain point and wind up finding other avenues for work. I think it also depends on what your life goals are. Do you want a family? Because if you want a family, instability and family do not work well because one always winds up suffering from the other. You have to make choices, is that you have your first child or your second child and you're completely overwhelmed with how much work it is to raise a child. Things like last minute auditions, last minute gigs that come up, touring dates, those are the types of things that you can no longer do. So that basically shrinks the amount of work that you're available for if you have kids, especially if you're female. And that's reality. It's just, it just is what it is. How do we get past that? How do we make it more equitable? That's a societal question. And that's also whoever you chose as your mate. If you have a husband as a woman who is perfectly okay staying home with the kids while you go on tour and that husband has the ability to work from home, you know, and the flexibility to work from home, then good for you. See ya. But that's very difficult as a mom, you know, to be away from your kid for three or four months on a tour. And it's difficult on the child because they don't have their mother. These are issues that we don't really talk about that often. I mean, we've been talking about them a little bit more within the scope of a regular job, you know, like a nine to five, there are, there are options. But as a touring artist, what do you do? Do you bring your kids on tour with you? But if you are playing Anna in a Disney Frozen that's on tour, are you going to be able to bring your kid? 
Are you making enough money to have full-time childcare while you're at rehearsals and doing performances and doing radio interviews and television shows and whatever? How does that work? There are too many factors to, to determine who's going to be successful in the long term and who isn't. It's personality, it's the choices that you make, and it's just circumstance. Sometimes it's just plain old luck. I love that answer. I love that. Okay, final question. Where can people find out more about you? Mono Lisa NYC at.com. M O N O L I S A N Y C dot com. Well, Denise, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. That was our interview with Denise Barbarita. My takeaways were money isn't a motivator. Denise is an artist who owns a business not a business owner who works with artists. When you're deciding on education, think of network and location on equal footing with the caliber of curriculum. The network is what's going to get you your jobs. Save for the slow months. They are guaranteed to come. Income ebbs and flows for freelancers, so be sure to save up when able. And finally, have a goal. Achieving a goal is possible as long as you know what you want. A special thank you to my patrons who have access to an additional hour of my interview with Denise. Visit patreon.com slash artisticfinance where you can gain access for as little as $3 a month. If becoming a patron isn't right for you, though it is, please find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube and subscribe. Also, a personal request from me, please leave comments and reviews. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.